We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode of Inside Golf Podcast is brought to you by RickRunGood.com. All of the stats, tools, and info that I will be referencing on the podcast can be found over at RickRunGood.com. I would say that for many, this really feels like the start of golf season with it being Super Bowl week. Hopefully, a lot of football folks are going to start getting back into golf this week. Might have a uh, a few new listeners this week, hopefully. So to quickly recap what you are getting with RickRunGood.com, it is the most extensive statistical database for fantasy golf and golf betting on the internet. That means, yes... We have European tour stats. We have corn fairy tour stats. That is the type of stuff that matters on weeks like this. I would like to know how Cameron Young hit the ball last week en route to his second place finish at the Saudi International. Did he gain a million strokes putting? Did he gain like 12 strokes ball striking? That is the type of stuff that really, really matters and I think gets overlooked by other places. But the importance of having European tour stats and stats from the majors, uh, frankly, I don't understand how you can model without those. I mean, you can, but it's just going to be an inaccurate model. Um, Speaking of models, we have an upcoming giant update to the site that honestly may drop in the next week or so. I'm going to ask Rick about that tomorrow when we do the betting show, but I know that the goal was Riviera week. Uh, So once the update hits, we are going to have the most extensive stats. Uh, We spent a ton of time figuring out what stats to add, uh, but the most extensive list of stats that you could plug into a model on the internet, I made sure that we had everything. Uh, so you can make the most ridiculously nerdy models uh, that you may please. Speaking of which, uh, you also gain access to three premium in-depth articles from me every week, including a Monday course breakdown where I run through my entire model. It's basically like a written form version of this podcast, except far more in depth in terms of the info and the numbers that it is providing, where I actually run through my specific inputs in case you want to just roll with mine completely. It generally works out pretty well for me. Plus my season long fantasy golf rankings every Tuesday. If you are in a season long fantasy golf league, and if you have start sit questions or want weekly rankings of who to play, who to leave on your bench, who to stash. We are the premier place for all things fantasy golf. And you can reach me in that Slack channel for any questions that you may have. And then finally, Wednesday final DraftKings thoughts article. We continue to be so close with that one. Just nailing the top of the board. I'm recording this on Sunday midday right before the final round is getting started at pebble beach uh my two plays that i have the most exposure to victor hovland who is in 100 of my lineups and keith mitchell who is in 80 percent of my lineups both enter the final round uh inside the top 10 of the tournament and my third guy 
Taylor Moore, who accounts for my third most exposure, uh, in the top 25 as well. Luckily, no Cam Davis to kill us this week. But this week, it was uh, it was Davis Riley that sunk the ship. But hey, you got to take some chances, and there was a reason that he was 5% this week. But we're close. I can feel it. We're circling it. Um, so to get all of my DraftKings thoughts, weather, ownership, favorite plays, plus all of my course thoughts, uh, season-long fantasy thoughts, you can find all of that at rickrungood.com, promo code Andy. That is the important part if you want to help me out. Uh, it is a really fun community. A lot of really smart people in that Slack channel. So rickrungood.com, promo code Andy, or just type in rickrungood.com dash Andy to reach my landing page. And we would love to have you as part of the team. All right, let's dive right in because this is a big one. Uh, one of the more fun events on the PGA tour schedule, the waste management Phoenix open. Uh, I think everyone loves this one. It has been, uh, this has been a tournament on the PGA tour a lot longer than I expected. There's been some form of this event since 1939. It was formally called the Phoenix open and held at Phoenix country club. But then starting in 1987, it moved to its current home, TPC Scottsdale. The course was built by Jay Marish and Tom Weiskopf, uh, who've actually done a ton of solid work in the Arizona area for this tournament, right? And uh, it is a little bit outside downtown Phoenix. Uh, so we've been coming to this course for almost 40 years. We have a lot of data on TPC Scottsdale. Uh, the only thing that has really changed for this year is that it is now an elevated event. Uh, with a $20 million purse, uh, $3.6 million to the winner. If you've had a slow start to your one-and-done season, uh, fear not, because you could pretty much make it all back this week if you get this one right. Uh, and it is a 136-man field uh, with a cut, which I love. Uh, I think low 70 in ties after 36 holes. Uh, we are done with the pro-ams we are done with the course rotations and this week is basically one step below a major-esque strength of field i mean we've got i believe 22 of the top 25 players in the world we've got pretty much everyone except uh the live players uh and will zalatoris which is a curious one because i'm not sure what to make of what's going on with him and his back injury if it's starting to flare up again a little bit or you know if he's just using his one skip for the elevated events to get fully healthy uh curious because i think this would be an excellent course for him uh but let's dive right into this course because i've got a lot to get to uh like i said this is in scottsdale arizona it was designed by jay marish and tom weiskopf uh, in 1986, Weiskopf came back in in 2014 to do a little redesign work, just make the course a little bit longer to kind of account for some, you know, the increases in distance and modern technology. Keep in mind, uh, this course plays uh, 1,530 feet above sea level. We are at altitude here, so the par 71 that measures 7,266 yards on the scorecard actually plays a lot shorter than that, which you will see uh, with the driving distance here, which is like 300 yards compared to the tour average of like 285 historically. So the combination of this being a driver-heavy course and the altitude uh, bombs away this week if you've ever played in the desert. Uh, the fairways are Bermuda grass with perennial rye and fine fescue. The rough is Bermuda grass with perennial rye and five fescue measuring 2.5 inches on average. As we'll talk about a little bit later, the rough is not much of a huge issue here. The one main thing that you don't want to do is find yourself in the desert, but the greens are Tiff Eagle Bermuda with a Poa Trivialis uh, perennial rye grass velvet bent grass overseed. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit later as well, measuring 7,069 square feet on average. So these greens are actually double 
the size of what we saw last week at Pebble Beach. Pretty large greens. Um, but, you know, since Weisskopf came in and did some redesign work in 2014, it was getting, you know, in 2013, Phil Mickelson won this tournament at 28 under par. So I think part of what Weisskopf was trying to do was beef up the course a little bit, try and protect par just a little bit more. And I would say that he did a fairly successful job of that. Since then, I believe every other winner has fallen between 14 and 19 under par and this is like your very very typical mid-scoring test on the pga tour in terms of scoring it's it's right in the middle in a lot of scoring categories like last year it ranked 20th out of 38 courses uh in scoring difficulty uh every single year kind of since that 2014 has played right around middle of the pack in terms of scoring difficulty and one thing that I actually like about the course, it's a course that generally plays more difficult as the week goes on. Um, you know, the more sunlight that it gets, the more that it's going to bake out and play firmer and faster. Uh, and that's what makes it play more difficult. That's when I think this course is really at its best, when it's really firm and really fast and really fiery. Um, and I wish more courses on the PGA Tour did that. I wish they stopped watering in between rounds so much but what's kind of cool about this tournament is it always feels like there's pretty easy scoring conditions over the first two days and then on Sunday it always feels like there's just madness and guys are ejecting left and right there is some legitimate trouble on this course and you can make some big numbers this course ranked fifth out of 38 courses last year in penalty strokes per round um, and a lot of that comes usually when it firms up over the weekend. So, you know, generally I am not a TPC guy at all. I, I don't love those types of courses. I think they serve a purpose on the PGA Tour, but architecturally I think they could kind of teeter the line of a little bit gimmicky in my opinion. And they basically use a couple very simple design templates that kind of just get copied over and over again. But of the TPC courses, I actually think that TPC Scottsdale kind of nails it. Um, I think for the purpose that it serves on the PGA tour, it's really good viewing. Um, and you know, I think if they really wanted to bake it out, this would be a really good match play course for like a president's cup. Um, they should bring a President's Cup here. Uh, I really feel that way because there are just some really fun risk-reward holes that actually involve strategy. It's not just homogenous execution, right? There's some legitimate shot values and decisions you have to make down the stretch. The drivable par 4 17th, I go back and forth on. Really interesting golf hole um, because you could kind of make the argument that it's a bad hole because there's no real point in laying up because you can still make par if you hit the ball in the water. Um, but in other ways, I think that's what makes it low key, a good golf hole because it basically encourages everybody to go for it. So yeah, you could call it a long par three, whatever, but I actually think that's a good template for a drivable par four. Um, and most of the time I'm like, oh man, a good drivable par four is actually one where there is a benefit for laying up and it's a lot harder to make par if you miss, but there's something about this hole that is like the outlier for me in terms of drivable par fours, where I actually like the idea that everyone should go for it, right? It, it, it creates a really fun atmosphere coming down the stretch um, and it does have when it does get firm and fast on Sunday you do have that moment where the ball hits the ground and I I distinctly remember Sahith the Gala's tee shot last year um, and that's when I think golf is at its best right when the ball hits the ground and you're not exactly sure what it's going to do too way too much target golf on the PGA Tour and, and this course does get pretty firm and fast over the weekend which I just think that's really good TV personally. And, I, and I'm really excited for this event. So just looking at the guys who have played really well here, uh, I think, 
you know, iron play and specifically off the tee is like the easiest through line that comes to mind. A lot of great ball strikers on this course over the years. Do not think you need to be a great putter here. A lot of Hideki, a lot of Brooks. Anytime you have Kyle Stanley win, you have to assume that you can get away with a shaky putter here. Uh, and for the most part, I should probably, like I said, kind of focus in on off the tee. This is a place where Scheffler, Brooks, Xander, Finau, Woodland, Hideki, Bubba, um, these are all guys that drive the ball really, really well. Um, and those are the types of guys that play well at major championships in places like Torrey Pines and Riviera. But what's kind of cool about TPC Scottsdale is, yes, you've got those guys, but it doesn't feel like Torrey Pines in the sense that Webb Simpson can't win or, or, or Ches Reeve or Matt Kuchar can't win. So it's kind of that rare form of course where, yes, you're going to see a lot of those big-time elite off-the-tee players that you see play well at Torrey Pines in the major championships, but Webb Simpson can win here too. Brant Snedeker can win here too. Ches Reeve, Matt Kuchar, Chris Kirk, like all those guys, um, all those guys that aren't necessarily elite off-the-tee um, but are really good mid to short iron players. Um, those guys can find success here too on this course. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about the ins and outs of the course. The greens are large here, which I love 7,100 square feet on average. That is, like I said, double what we saw at Pebble Beach last weekend. Uh, the greens are, so it, the base is Tiff Eagle Bermuda grass. I'm not going to get too into the weeds on stuff, uh, on this stuff, but they're Bermuda based, they're based Bermuda greens, but they get overseeded every single year with a, uh, well, it's changed over the years, but over the last two years, they've added uh, velvet bent grass uh, overseed to the mix. So they're not really Bermuda grass greens. And I don't think that you should be looking at Bermuda grass putting uh, just because there's so many grainy Florida Bermuda grass courses that are nothing like this. Once you actually overseed a course with velvet bent grass, and these are, these are the same type of greens that I have at my course in, in, um, in LA gets really, really smooth out there. Right. And I'm not necessarily saying that these play more like bent grass than they do Bermuda, but this is a really, really smooth, surface to putt on and that's why when we talk about some of the putting metrics you'll see this is one of the easiest courses on the pga tour to hold putts on a really stark contrast from what we saw the last two weeks on poa which were basically the hardest uh the hardest type of grass to make putts inside five feet this is like the opposite right now with that velvet bent grass overseed which really smooths things out you know, if you start your putts on this on the right line, you're going to see a lot of a lot of putts go in. So, you know, this is a it's a it's a beautiful grass to have greens on this type of year. You see it, uh, you know, somewhat similar to the American Express. A lot of really nicely maintained desert golf courses have gone to this type of overseed. Uh, it's a it's a fairly expensive type of overseed, so you're not going to see it everywhere. I don't think there was as much velvet bent grass in the American Express greens, but it's similar to that, right? TPC Sawgrass has actually started going to a very similar overseed in his brook. Uh, when we play the Valspar that time of year, they use a similar overseed. Um, so, I, you know, the way that I would handle putting this week, I, I completely mixed out uh and created my own separate model for putting on overseeded bermuda don't really think that you have to do that this week uh and i dive a little bit deeper to that in my uh article on rickrungood.com but you know i would be careful just saying oh this is regular bermuda because that's going to account for you know courses like kapalua right where those greens are nothing like these right um you know, like I said, if you want to get really nerdy, you can look at how guys have putted at 
Innisbrook, the Players, the American Express, a lot of these courses that oversee their Bermuda. I think the best way to go about it is if you're not going to create your own overseeded model, then look at how guys have putted well here, right? I mean, they've changed these greens a little bit over the years, but especially over the last two years, um, look at guys who have putted here. And it, again, it's a really it's a really easy surface to hold putts on. So in my opinion, I wouldn't be looking a whole lot at putting to begin with because I think that this is a course that, um, you know, it's one of those ones where it's like, does it actually help bad putters or does it help good putters? Well, you could make an argument for both, right? If you are a good putter and you start your ball on the right line, you are going to see a lot of putts go in. However, also, if you are a bad putter, this is not the type of course that is going to freak you out with a ton of undulation uh, or uh, contouring on these greens. If you are not great at reading greens, I don't think that you are going to have a massive amount of trouble here. Uh, what else stood out to me? So, you know, I, one thing, another reason why I like this course is that it creates a very, very balanced path to victory, right? Like you look at the winners across the year, right? And and there's not a lot of consistent through lines where one guy is doing the same thing over and over again, right? It's usually a pretty balanced attack where sometimes, you, like last year, for example, Scotty Scheffler won this tournament losing strokes on approach. He also gained over five strokes off the tee and over five strokes putting, but you can win this tournament losing strokes on approach, right? You can win this tournament being completely dominant off the tee and with your putter. You can win this tournament being like plus one putting, right? There are a lot of ways to get to the right answer at this course. Uh, the year before, like Brooks gained plus 9.1 with his irons and putting. Uh, only three short game and off the tee. Uh, but then you go down a little bit farther and it's like, okay, Spieth gained 12 irons and putting, lost 1.7 strokes off the tee in short game. Steve Stricker, I'm just going through down that 2021 leaderboard. Steve Stricker lost off the tee, gained 8.5 irons and putting and finished fourth. And that year, nine of the top 10 guys gained over three strokes putting. Um, so I wonder if, you know, the increase in putting over the last uh, two years or so has anything to do with the new overseed. It's it's a little bit too small of a sample size, but you look, you go back a little bit further in 2020, it's it's somewhat similar, right? It's a lot of irons and putting. Webb gained 12 strokes iron and putting. Finau gained over 10. Year before, Fowler 12.4 irons and putting. JT almost 11. But the reason why I think you need more of a complete game here is if you look past the winners, and I always say, you know, do not just look at what the winner did. That's pretty short-sighted in my opinion. Look at look at the whole story, right? Often the guy who actually wins the tournament has a ridiculous outlier performance, usually with their irons or their putter, right? Um, just looking at the one guy who won the tournament, it's like picking up a book and saying, I'm just going to read one chapter and, you know, tell you all about this story based on one chapter. So, for example, if you look at the average strokes gained of top 10 finishers, uh, off the tee, like, really jumps out, right? And you're not going to see that at a lot of courses on the PGA Tour, right, where the top of the leaderboard is usually dominated by irons and putting. And, yeah, that is the case usually at the top, top of the leaderboard of Phoenix, but... In terms of like correlation uh, with success and finishing in the top 10 here and the top five here and the top 25 here in making the cut, um, I think off the tee really matters a lot here. I do not, I think this is just as much a first shot golf course as it is a second shot golf course. And I'll, I'll explain why. But if you look at the driving distance here, which was above 300 yards last year, um, this is a driver heavy course. Uh, and I think that you can hit driver a lot here and take advantage of this course off the tee. I think that's why Brooks has been so good. Xander's been so good. Woodland, Rom, um, JT, you know, a lot of these guys that are dominant drivers of the ball 
where it's not like Torrey Pines, where if you can't drive the ball long and straight, you are necessarily at some massive disadvantage. Um, But I do think if you have that in your arsenal, it's a massive edge. And uh, I, I actually think it's more about like total driving this week than it is specifically distance. Um, I think this is a really good week to look at something like good drive percentage um, because I really want to filter out players that keep the ball in play off the tee because the one thing that you cannot do on this course unless you're Jordan Spieth and you can kind of consistently rely on pulling a rabbit out of your ass, I think you really need to drive the ball well here and you really need to stay out of the desert, right? That is the one thing here where you can find yourself in a lot of trouble. Like I said, this course consistently ranks top five in penalty strokes. That's not necessarily just because there's water that comes into play in a couple holes. It's also because, you know, you can find yourself in a cactus uh, some of the time, right? So you look at the guys, I'm looking at the guys last year, all the top 10 guys on the leaderboard. Every single one of those guys in the top 10 was over plus one in good drive percentage. Now they were also plus one in greens and regulation percentage, but we don't always see that every week, right? Like again, this is kind of a stark contrast from what we saw last week at Pebble, where I didn't look at off the tee at all because you've got these super wide fairways and I know Pebble really well. I've played there a couple times. So I know that there's very little benefit to hitting driver. There's a lot of forced layup holes and, um, you know, the ones where you can hit driver, it's a super wide fairway. Uh, but at TPC Scottsdale, however, and I've never played TPC Scottsdale to me, it feels like there's a big advantage for putting yourself in the right position off the tee. You know, the second shot is still extremely important, but I think the second shots are a little bit more uh, bland than the first shots on this course. I think this is a really interesting course off the tee. The approaches to the greens are okay, Um, but there are so many holes on this course where you are just in such deep shit if you don't drive the ball in play Um, so that is one thing that is one major box that I'm looking for my guys to check off this week. I talked about this last time, the last time I did a Sunday podcast where I'm really trying to dumb these down and kind of focus on like three key things that I think you want to look at this week and kind of look at players in the sense of, okay, what are the three key boxes on this course that I'm looking for my, I think it's a really good way to kind of try and handicap and and try and figure out guys especially at the bottom of your DraftKings pool is basically figure out what are like the three or four main boxes that you want players to check each week and basically determine how many of those boxes your players are checking and the first one for me that I wanted to highlight on this course is can I trust you to keep the ball in play off the tee right and if you happen to be really long that's great. I'm looking at total driving this week, big time. But the one main thing that you cannot do on this course, because it's really easy to put on this course. The greens are really large. There's generally not a breath of wind. It's essentially like playing golf in a dome. So the one main pushback of this course, and this happens especially over the weekend when it firms up, is can you keep the ball out of the desert? Right. Uh, So that is a major, major key box that I'm looking for my players to check. Uh, And again, these fairways are like middle of the pack in terms of width. They're not crazy narrow. Driving accuracy percentage is really low here, basically because it's a course where it entices you to hit driver and being in the rough just off the fairway is no problem. Right. But these are actually the fifth hardest fairways to hit on the PGA Tour. And again, that's not necessarily because they are the most narrow fairways on the PGA Tour. They rank 13th out of 38 courses in fairway width. But it's such a driver-heavy course where it rewards this aggressive style of play where if you can drive the ball long and straight, if you can keep the ball out of the desert, you are at such an advantage on this course. So last year, 22.7% of strokes gained at TPC Scottsdale 
came via off the tee, which is well above the tour average of 15.2%. That number dips historically to 18.9%, but that is still well above tour average, which again speaks to the working theory I have that I think what you do off the tee at this course is of great relevance this week. And uh, yes, you can hit some absolute bombs at TPC Scottsdale. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the altitude. Uh, but as I've previously alluded to, TPC Scottsdale features the longest average driving distance on par fours and par fives on the PGA Tour last year. Um, I just think this is a course where you want to be aggressive. Uh, a lot of these TPC courses, we see it at places as well, like TPC Twin Cities comes to mind, and we can talk about comp courses a little bit later on. But um, these types of courses that actually give you a real advantage, if you can step up and hit driver um, and cut some of the corners on these dog legs, right? And, and listen, you know, the rough here is not a massive problem at all. You do not need to be some super elite accuracy maven, right? I am not looking at driving accuracy percentage this week. And the rough is is really not the problem, right? It ranked 30th out of 38 courses in rough penalty. Um, but again, third out of 38 courses in fraction of missed fairways that result in the penalty stroke. Um, so the massive thing at TPC Scottsdale is really just keeping the ball in play off the tee and not finding yourself in the desert. In terms of iron play, it's pretty spread out too, right? It kind of ranks middle of the pack uh, in terms of approach difficulty. Like I said, I think the tee shots here are a little bit more interesting and provocative than a lot of the approach shots. But what I like about this course is that it's pretty well balanced in terms of uh, the proximity buckets that you are going to see. The last two weeks, we have had such outliers in terms of where the approach shots are coming from right at the three course rotation at Pebble Beach. So many wedges, right? So, so many wedges on Pebble Beach, Monterey Peninsula, and even Spyglass Hill, right? All those courses played, you know, a touch below 7,000 yards or right around 7,000 yards and are such wedge heavy courses. Rewind two weeks ago and you get Torrey Pines, which features the largest plurality of long iron shots basically out of any non-major course on the PGA Tour. And this week is kind of right in the middle, right? This this is a lot of, um, if I had to choose one, now it's pretty balanced because you are going to have your fair share of wedges and a couple long iron shots as well because the par fives are reachable. Uh, but TBC Scottsdale is kind of right in the middle, right? You're, you're going to get a fair amount of middle iron shots last year the proximity buckets that were above tour average was everything from 100 to 175 yards and even 175 to 200 was right around tour average and if we look at this course historically 150 to 175 is really the only proximity bucket that kind of jumps out last year you had 21.7 percent of approach shots come from that range which pretty healthily above the tour average of 20.3%. And that number jumps to 24.4% historically. But, you know, if I had to choose, I would say middle iron play is probably the most important. Um, but again, I think it's a course where you really just want to look at overall iron play because it's pretty spread out. You're going to have some long iron shots. You're going to have a fair amount of middle, middle iron shots, and you're going to have your fair share of wedges too, because, you know, still it's not a super long course. And because of the altitude, right. And, and it being such a driver heavy course that rewards an aggressive style of play off the tee, you're still going to have your fair share of wedges too. Now around the green is interesting on this course too, because, you know, I, I unlike pebble last week, I, I would not say that around the green is, you know, fairly irrelevant because you have such a high greens and regulation percentage. And I would not say that short game is like, massively off the charts important the way that it is at Torrey Pines either where you have this fairly fairly low greens and regulation percentage TPC Scottsdale usually ranks like middle of the pack in terms of greens and regulation percentage it ranked 24th out of 38 
uh, courses in greens and regulation percentage, and 16.8% of strokes gained at TPC Scottsdale came around the green, which is you know, well above the tour average of 14.5%. That number does fall historically to 14.8%, which is still a touch above tour average. But despite these greens being fairly large and featuring an above average uh, greens and regulation percentage, last year, TPC Scottsdale ranked eighth out of 38 courses in around the green difficulty. And it generally ranks on the harder side in strokes gain around the green difficulty. I would say historically, and this is by a fairly small margin, it kind of depends on the year, but compared to other courses, of the four major skill sets, it is actually hardest to gain strokes around the green at TPC Scottsdale. And what kind of stood out to me was that chipping out of the rough here, not much of a problem. 23rd out of 38 courses and around the green difficulty from the rough. Uh, the bunkers, there are a lot of bunkers, um, and 14th out of 38 courses in around the green difficulty from the bunkers. But again, like you increase the sample size and look kind of more long-term across the last decade, nothing super, super challenging about the bunkers. Um, but what stood out to me is that it ranked fifth out of 38 courses in around the green difficulty from the fairway, uh, which is basically saying that it's a course, if you notice, A lot of big collection areas, a lot of short grass around the greens, which I love. And once the ball kind of hits the ground and falls into some of these collection areas, chipping off of tight Bermuda is pretty tough. Like that is a skill. And we see it every single year at this tournament. Um, I remember in the Brooks year, you know, Xander chipping himself out of the tournament and Brooks winning the tournament through his chipping. Um, but this is a course where chipping down the stretch off these tight Bermuda lies where you kind of find yourself in these collection areas, really, really important. So one thing that I am looking at this week, again, it falls pretty middle of the pack in terms of its statistical importance at this course when we talk about around the green in general. But one thing that I was looking at is how players tend to chip off of tight lies on Bermuda, because I think that is the most difficult kind of uh, area subset you should, I could say of around the green is how players chip off of these tight Bermuda wise, because you're going to find yourself in these collection areas a lot. And then putting, we touched on a bunch Uh, again, I just don't think this is a course where it is a ball strikers course through and through, right? It ranked 26th out of 29 courses in putting difficulty two years ago, 36 out of 37 courses in putting difficulty three years ago, 35th out of 37 courses in putting difficulty four years ago. It ranked uh, 35th out of 38 courses in putting difficulty inside five feet, Um, 16th out of 38 courses in putting difficulty from five to 15 feet. And historically, it ranks tour average to easier than tour average in putting from five to 15 feet. And then uh, last year was a bit of an anomaly with the putting greater than 15 feet, but it generally ranks easier than tour average to one of the easier courses on the PGA tour putting from greater than 15 feet. So despite the fact that these are larger greens, they're not super undulating or challenging greens, right? This is a course where you're going to see a lot of hold putts, uh, in terms of scoring stats, Like all TPC courses, you are going to need to make your fair share of birdies. There was obviously a pretty strong correlation between players who rated out highly in birdies or better gained and the top of the leaderboard. Now, that's obviously the case at all tournaments, but it's even more pronounced here than other places. There are a lot of birdie holes on this course. That is what TPC courses were designed to have as this course was designed for this event in 1986 and like many of the tbc courses they are designed to give you a lot of birdie opportunities and a couple holes that are probably going to eat your lunch too right and there are a ton of birdie holes on this course i think pretty much every single hole on this course features over a 10 percent birdie rate but the reason why this tournament is not one at 25 under par 
uh, is because there are a lot of big numbers out there as well, right? Again, fifth out of 38 courses in penalty strokes per round. So I think this is a really good week to look at guys who play really aggressive golf and score, right? Opportunities gained, birdies are better gained, uh, birdie percentage on par fives, right? Um, so big time, big time, big time scoring this week. I'm, I'm looking at aggressive play. I'm looking at guys who make a lot of birdies. And then in terms of course history to close out, um, you know, this is a course that we go to every single year. The weather is always perfect. There's rarely any wind. So it's basically like playing golf in a dome. And a lot of the same guys always seem to have success here. So what was interesting to me is that it did rank fourth out of 38 courses in correlation of success with course history, despite me not really believing that this is a nuanced course whatsoever. I think this is a course where you can kind of show up here and figure it out pretty quickly. I think it's, I think it's kind of more about players, whether they like or dislike this environment, right? You, you can see guys figure this course out really quickly. Brooks won on his first appearance here. Kyle Stanley won on his debut uh, uh, appearance here. Rom, as an amateur, almost won on his first appearance. Hideki almost won on his first appearance. Brandon Grace almost won on his first appearance. Patrick Cantlay, in his first appearance last year, lost in a playoff. Matt Fitzpatrick finishes top 10 last year in his first appearance here. So, yeah, you know, you look at the guys that have played well here, there are certain guys that are just kind of always awesome, right? Like Xander, for example, John Rahm, for example, Hideki, Brooks, Bubba's been awesome here. JT's been awesome here. Webb has been awesome here. Uh, There's a course where Kucher and Snedeker have also been consistently really good too, but I wouldn't rule out a guy just because it's their first appearance. Uh, We've had a ton of guys have a ton of success on their first appearance. And Again, I don't necessarily think that this is just because of a certain skill set fitting this course. I think it's a lot about, you know, Brooks talked about this. Um, I think some guys just love the atmosphere here. You know, Brooks talked before about how the fans kind of get him going. There's an energy here that you just don't see at other events. And I think this has actually been... It's interesting to talk about Brooks because we don't get to see him here. We're not going to get to see him here anymore. But I think he's a good case study for this working theory that I have, where this is one of the very few courses outside of major championships that Brooks has consistently had a lot of success at. And this is obviously not a major. uh, But I think the reason for that is, is there's so much juice and excitement about this tournament that, you know, it's one of the few courses, the few non-major courses that always seem to hold his attention where, you know, certain non-majors at boring courses that don't really have much of a personality or events that don't really have much of an identity. Um, he's talked about how those feel a little bit dull to him and it's harder for him to get engaged and feed off the atmosphere. Um, but like I said, like, I think at this course, there's a certain energy here where players just love the atmosphere. They feed off it. They seem to always play well. So that's why course history, again, I think is kind of a a tricky one this week where it's not a very nuanced course and you can certainly show up here and perform on your first appearance. Um, But it seems like there's there's something about this course too, where certain players and, and, you know, maybe it's again, like I think about a guy like JT who has been so good at team events and talked about how much he loves team events. And and he's also been so great here, but this is a golf course. Um, that again, I think some of the guys that you see play well here, it may actually have less to do with how they actually fit the course on paper and more to do that this type of engaging atmosphere just kind of brings it out in them, right? And you heard players talk about, Rory talk about this a bunch when golf first came back from the pandemic. A lot of players really need the fans. They relish the fans and the atmosphere. And it can feel like a practice round 
to some of them without the fans. And Rory talked about that a ton when he was struggling a lot when golf first came back after the pandemic, where it's like, yeah, man, it's really hard out there for me without the fans. Um, So again, like I do think there's merit in looking at course history at looking guys who've consistently thrived in this atmosphere. This is like the only tournament that kind of has its own distinctive personality, identity, and atmosphere. And it's almost more like a like a Ryder Cup, a President's Cup atmosphere than it is like a major championship atmosphere. Um, but I think, you know, there's just some players that love that and play well here year in and year out. And again, I think some of that has to do with course fit, but I think it has more to do with the fact that this is a unique and singular tournament where there's just a little bit of a different vibe. In terms of comp courses, you know, there are a lot of similarities between a lot of these TPC courses, right? I think the most obvious one that comes to mind for me is TPC Summerlin because that's also a TPC desert course at elevation that is really scorable, but the main thing you have to do is keep the ball out of the desert. Um, but it, there are a lot of ones like this, right? Like TPC Boston. Um, I like, I think I've already mentioned TPC Twin Cities on this podcast as like another driver heavy course with a lot of trouble off the tee, yet it's kind of begging you to hit driver and play aggressively. Um, another course that kind of came to mind was the Summit Club, where they had the CJ Cup last year. You know, that's a little bit easier than this course, but it's another desert driver-heavy risk-reward course that plays at elevation. And then the other one that I immediately thought of that made sense to me as a mid-scoring Bermuda grass course with kind of a ton of trouble everywhere, but that rewards aggressive play uh, was the concession, right, where they had that, that WGC Workday won by Colin Morikawa, I guess, two years ago now in 2021. And you look at the leaderboard at the concession, it's all the same guys that play well here. And I mean, even Brooks finished second that year at the concession. And there is some correlation too between Sawgrass. I think Sawgrass is a little bit more positional. I don't think that you can hit as many drivers at Sawgrass, but it does have this kind of risk-reward aspect to it, and you look at the leaderboard, and it's just tons and tons of correlation, and it it has that same element where you can birdie almost every hole. Like, we see guys go out in 29 at the players all the time, but you can also make double in an instant. Right. And and that's another course where they kind of have similar greens with the overseeded Bermuda. Um, and then, you know, again, like if you want to do like a strokes gain TPC thing, you know, be my guess. I'm not personally going to do that just because I think some of the courses on the TPC network do vary. Like, you know, some of those courses like where they have <clears throat> the Byron Nelson that's just totally wide open birdie fest. You don't really need to focus on keeping the ball and play off the tee. You know, some of these courses have different grasses, different parts of the country, different type of year, not at altitude. But from an architectural standpoint, the TPC network does design courses with a very specific goal in mind, right? These courses are designed for professional golf right, where they're basically looking uh, to create an atmosphere for professional golf tournaments where the winning score falls somewhere between, I don't know, 14 and 25 under par, and many of the par threes are over water, and all of the par fives are pretty much reachable but have a risk-reward element, Um, so low numbers are available, and guys can make a charge, but there's enough trouble where you can also eject, and... um, I think if your goal is designing a TPC-type course, um, I actually think TPC Scottsdale succeeds massively. Um, I don't think a lot of the other TPC courses necessarily do the best job of what they are set out to do, but I think TPC Scottsdale actually really delivers. Um, So let us take a quick break and then I'm going to quickly run through the top 20 of my model and uh, talk about one or two players that I'm looking to target. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. All right, so I plugged all of this stuff into my model. Again, for the full model inputs, you can find that in my article on rickrunkit.com, which will be up uh, midday, Monday, Monday morning. But I plugged all that stuff into a model, and here were the top 20 guys for me that it shot out. Number one, Tony Finau, um, who we can talk about. I think this is an interesting spot for Tony Finau. And again, we do have odds from one major sports book. DraftKings odds are out as I record this midday on Sunday. Number two, Rory McIlroy, not a huge surprise there. Number three, Scotty Scheffler, again, not a huge surprise there. Number four, Xander Shoffley. Number five, Sung J M. Number six, Tom Kim. Number seven, John Rahm. So I think those top seven are exactly who you would expect. Um, those are probably the seven guys uh, that, you know, have been playing some of the best golf recently, have a lot of great history already at this course and are, you know, amongst the best ball strikers in the world. Number eight, Shane Lowry, who I think is an interesting one. I think there is a lot of value in that uh, DraftKings price that Shane Lowry uh, has. I think he's 60 to one. I think it's a really good number on Shane Lowry. Number nine, Colin Morikawa, who I like a lot this week and I think also has a pretty fair betting number. Number 10, Tom Hoagie. Uh, 11, Patrick Cantlay, 12, Justin Thomas, 13, Brian Harmon, 14, Hideki Matsuyama, 15, Russell Henley, 16, Corey Connors, 17, Matt Kuchar, 18, Ben Taylor, uh, who's, I think, a really great sleeper option this week, a, a really good DraftKings play. Uh, ben Taylor, there's one for you. Uh, 19, Tommy Fleetwood, and 20, Max Homa. So, you know, for me, I, I'm just looking at the DraftKings pricing. And I'll tell you what, before I ran any model or anything, I was prepared to keep riding Justin Thomas. Um, when I say keep riding Justin Thomas, it's not like I've been betting him blindly every single week. But I did bet him um, at the Century Tournament of Champions, and I... I want to say like the hero as well, but I think Justin Thomas just uh, at, from a bird's eye view is the elite player that 
I think most needs a win is most due for a win, right? I don't think that Finau has anything to prove right now. I don't think Rory has anything to prove until we get to the majors. John Rahm certainly doesn't have anything to prove. Still don't really think that Xander or Scotty uh, coming off those years that they just have, or Tom Kim um, really have, or Patrick Cantlay for that matter too, who just won the BMW like eight starts ago. Um, I, I think JT is like the most due, right? This is a guy who won 14 times from ages like 22 to 27. And then in the last two years has essentially only won two tournaments albeit them being the players and the PGA Championship. But this is a guy that used to rack up wins on the PGA Tour. And um, this was a guy that I thought, based on his play, was going to start drifting on the odds board a little bit. And I thought, okay, you know, Phoenix, JT's winning Phoenix, right? Um, Ton of great history here. He's at the point where he should be drifting, Right, I think when JT won the players in 2021 now, uh, he hit that key number of 20 to 1, right? And you look at his form coming into that players' championship, it's actually like better than he's playing now, but he's not getting that drift. Um, so, you know, I looked at the DraftKings odds board and I saw that JT was still 16 to 1. And I looked at Finau, who's 25 to 1, and the number one player in my model. And I, I just don't understand why Finau, based on everything he's done, he's Finau's won three times in his last nine starts. I don't understand why Finau is 10 points lower than Justin Thomas right now. So I think you have to bet Finau, or I have to bet Finau. Even though my first instinct was JT, and I think JT is is more due for a win than Finau. Like, is Finau really going to win four times in 11 starts, right? Um, but I just thought, based on my numbers, and again, Finau rates out better for me at this golf course than anyone. And I know his course history, it's weird, right? He's had like a ton of missed cuts. He's missed five of seven cuts here, but he also has a second place finish and a 22nd. I don't care about the missed cuts. Finau before this year used to be a much more volatile player that was far more dependent on putting. Um, This is a guy, Finau, like he's gained 11 strokes ball striking at this course before. He finished runner-up here, right? He's gained over five strokes putting here before. I I have no concerns about the fact that he's missed a bunch of cuts. Um, So I bet Finau at 25 to 1 just because, you know, it's a pure number play where I don't understand why Finau isn't 14 to 1 at this tournament. I mean, seriously, I wouldn't have blinked based on how he's been playing if you put Finau ahead of Xander or ahead of Scheffler. I I just simply don't understand why Finau is 25 to 1 and all of these guys, I, I just think that he should be I think that he should be ahead of some of these guys. And my numbers suggest that, you know, Finau, right now, I think that Rory and Rom are really in a class of their own. And I think both have a fantastic chance to win. I'm not going to bet either of them at those short numbers. But if you're asking me who I think is like the third best player in the world right now, I think Finau is kind of in that conversation. And so I don't really understand why he's 25 to one. So I bet the 25 to one on Finau. Now, uh, the next guy that in terms of numbers that stood out to me, this guy was fifth in my model, but Sung Jay at 35 to one. And I know everyone's going crazy about the Burns number who rates out like terribly for me for some reason. Um, I, it, I'm not going to go there. My numbers just seem to, not like him for whatever reason, but I completely understand that that's like an objectively incorrect number, the DraftKings price of him of like 55 to 1 based on how much this guy wins. But for me, the guy that really has my attention more so is Sungjae, again, who ranks top five in my model and is at 35 to 1. Again, wouldn't have really blinked 
if he was 28 to one. Um, I think that's a really good number on Sungjae, who has gone seventh, 34th, 17th here, who is coming off the best iron week of his entire career through three rounds on Torrey Pine South. Sungjae, I played a ton of him on DraftKings uh, that week. He gained seven strokes on approach. Uh, and he's been playing amazing. I mean, he ended the year on an extremely hot note, and he hasn't really slowed down at all outside of like a random miscut at the Sony Open. This is a guy that has done just about everything but win. Second at the 3M Open. That's another comp course that I talked about a lot. Second at the Wyndham. 12th FedEx St. Jude's. 15th BMW. Second Tour Championship where he rose up that leaderboard. 13th Century Tournament of Champions, 18th American Express, 4th Torrey Pines. Um, he's won the Shriners before, which again was the other main comp course that I talked about too. So for me, the two guys that have my most attention, I haven't bet the Sung J35 yet, just in case when odds drop on Monday morning, there's something weird that comes out with him because... There are so many good players in this field that, you know, there are some good DraftKings numbers, but I would keep your options open. The only reason why I pounced on Finau 25 is because that would very much surprise me if there was like a 28 to 1 on Finau at any other book. I mean, I thought 25 to 1 was extremely irresponsible. Uh, So again, I felt comfortable jumping on the 25 on Finau. I'm holding out just in case we see something weird with Sungjae, but he would be the second guy for me at 35 to one. And again, you know, this is a week where I'll talk about a ton of sleepers and, you know, all the other content that I bang out this week. But, um, in terms of like outright betting, there's too much talent at the top for me to really envision a player really pass like that Shane Lowry group. And that might be a guy that I add, um, like I would feel pretty damn good, and I still think I'd be underexposed. I'd have to run the numbers on this. But like a three-way group of Finau, Sungjae, and um, Lowry. And again, I think I might be pretty underexposed in that. Maybe I even have... I'd have to run the numbers. But I might even be able to fit like Finau, Sungjae, and get my JT gut feeling in there, right? Or kind of the other guy at 25 to 1 that I liked a lot. I, I don't like more than Finau, but I like a lot is Morikawa, um, who won the concession, right? Who I think has only played here once, but gained like seven strokes ball striking and checks a ton of the boxes that I'm looking for in terms of being able to keep the ball and play off the tee, elite middle iron player, great ball striker in general, playing some great golf. Um, but I, I don't see myself betting guys above 40 50 to one this week i just think that there's too much talent at the top and you know maybe this is a week where even like rom or rory just blow away the field but i don't think i can envision this being a week that is won by a long shot i just think there's too much talent at the top so finau uh and sung jay for me would be kind of the two early looks uh, the guys that I'm monitoring pretty closely are uh, Lowry, JT, Morikawa, um, and uh, I will probably have a better sense of that by tomorrow morning when the uh, more of the books open up, and I will be doing a betting preview on the Odds Checker YouTube channel with uh, Jeff Feinberg, um, where I will flesh out a lot more of my thoughts once I talk to him, uh, but That will be it for me. You can find me later this week, uh, Monday morning, uh, what is it, course preview article. A lot of stuff on my plate right now. I get mixed up. A lot of stuff I got to tweet out throughout the week. It uh, it just kind of piles up. Um, That's why I apologize again for this coming out so late on Sunday afternoon. I got to get back in the swing of recording this on like, Saturday. I used to get this out on Saturday. I'm going to I'm going to make an effort to get better at that. That that's that's my goal because I only do this Sunday podcast for like some of the bigger tournaments. And I think I'll definitely do one next week for Riviera, but I got to got to get back in the habit of getting them out a little bit earlier on Saturday. Um 
But yeah, so Monday article on Rick, uh, rickrungood.com course breakdown video with Jeff Feinberg. I will also have my written picks out for Golf Monthly, experts picks for Golf Digest, uh, betting preview video with Rick, uh, and yeah, all the other articles for Rick later that week as well. Uh, So that will be it for me. Uh, you can find me on this podcast feed tomorrow with my good friend, John Hasselbauer, PGA tout. Uh, he will be on talking some more Phoenix. Again, I'll probably have a lot more, uh, of my betting card fleshed out by then, but until then, uh, best of luck with your bets. I guess if you get, have a guy in the mix on, uh, at Pebble on Monday, uh, happy Super Bowl week. And we will see you next time. Cheers.